Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood Campus of Christ Community. And it's great to be with you this morning. If you've been with us the last few months, actually, we've been uh, in the book of Matthew uh, as he tells a story of Jesus. Uh, and uh, we've been specifically the last few weeks in chapters five through seven, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous sermons that, that Jesus ever gives. And Matthew records it for us. And, and today, Jesus teaches us, you just heard it read, it was hinted at, he teaches us the danger of a life lived for the purpose of being seen by others. That's the phrase Jesus uses. To get the approval of others, the accolades of others, the, 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 the applause. This has always been a temptation, I think, for, for human beings, but I, but I can't imagine a more relevant topic for modern people. Has there ever been a time more obsessed with appearance than now? More tailored to public opinion, more desperate for applause. And, and of course, the internet has made that so much worse because I remember a time when I only needed to worry about how people perceived me in person. Um, but now there's a whole online electronic persona that we have to manage and tailor for our online audiences as well. And to prepare for this message, just with that in mind, I looked through several scholarly journals and periodicals to, just to get some raw data on our obsession with self-promotion in the modern age, but that was really hard, so I, I just found this Onion article instead. Um, <laughs> and really, it's probably better than all that stuff anyway. And here, here's satirically how it describes uh, building a personal brand in the modern age. So here are the, here's some advice. Uh, create a professional website to show off the work that has failed to get you hired. Uh, <laughs> build a fan base by loudly inserting yourself in the public sphere. Ask yourself what really makes you, you. Is it your desperate need for validation or your complete lack of shame when it comes to self-promotion? <laughs> and then finally, my personal favorite. Remember that the internet is a meritocracy where the best, most innovative ideas win, so try to be as physically attractive as possible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the truth hurts, doesn't it? I mean, it's funny, but isn't that, isn't that it? There's always, there's always an audience in life. There's always someone we're trying to impress, someone we think can make or break us, an opinion or opinions that matter more to us than anything else, which is a bit ironic uh, when you think about it, as I thought about it this week, because as modern people, at least on a superficial level, we, we were promised a new age in which we could live for no audience at all. To thine own self be true. Do what you think is best. Only your opinion matters, your self-worth, your self-value. What you think of you is the most important thing. The good life was audience-free, no more oppressive traditions or family obligations or social norms of the past. But you, but you don't need to look very hard at our culture today to realize that promise of the modern age has, has completely and utterly failed. See, in an effort to free ourselves from, the, from these shackles of expectation and obligation, we have not replaced those audiences with nothing but with everything. There is an audience everywhere. Work home, friends, school, sports, social media, teachers, peers, even church. So many identities to manage. So many places to keep up appearances. And it's exhausting, isn't it? 
It's terrible. See, we were promised the good life, but I haven't found it on Facebook or Twitter yet. Have you? Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is also promising us the good life. And last week, uh, uh, he showed us that we, all of us, have a serious heart problem preventing us from the good life. And this is what Tom talked about. He said, basically, look at your sin. You think the key to the good life is not murdering people. But I tell you that when you harbor hatred, when you're angry in your heart toward your brother, you have committed murder. You have a heart problem. And now, he says to each of us, you don't just have a heart problem. That was chapter five. Chapter six, you don't just have a heart problem that I'm here to address. You have an audience problem. You live and you work and you strive and you cater to the wrong audience. There's only one person, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's the opinion of God. See, Jesus will teach us this morning that one of the keys to the good life is living before the right audience, having one audience, living for God and God alone. That's what he's going to teach us. If you haven't turned uh, to Matthew chapter 6 yet, you can do that now. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And, and really in verse 1, Jesus summarizes the problem the whole, for the whole section. Here's what he says. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is saying, you have an audience problem. You have a tendency to live your life for other people and not for God, and it is destroying you. And then he says, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. Your sins show you that you have a heart problem. I already talked about that. But your good deeds, what you're most proud of, the things that you don't mind other people knowing about you, look at those things. And they will show you if you have an audience problem. So Jesus gives, this is what he does. He gives three illustrations to make his point. He says, look at your giving, it's verses two to four. Look at your prayer life, verses five to 15. And look at your private disciplines, like fasting, verses 16 to 18. And they will show you who your audience really is. And there's a reason he chooses these three things. These three things in his day uh, were universal among people. Any decent person uh, at the time, any decent Jew in particular would do these three things daily, weekly, all the time. Everybody did these things. And, and in each case, Jesus' warning is against hypocrisy. So you'll notice that word comes up in every section. Don't give like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't fast like the hypocrites. And, and this is an image we use all the time when we, uh, in our kind of moral discourse, especially when we're talking about someone who appears to have a, high, a moral high ground on someone, but it, it, you know, you kind of poke deeper and you see, okay, they have the same, they have the same inconsistencies as everybody else that they're condemning. And, and this is, Jesus basically invented that meaning for this word right here in the text. You don't find it in the ancient world. Jesus, um, in classical Greek, uh, hypocrite just means actor. That's all it means. There was, there was actually a Greco-Roman amphitheater just a few miles from Jesus's hometown in Nazareth in a place called Sephoris. And, uh, Many that Jesus preached to in this Sermon on the Mount would have been familiar with the, with the theater and with, with actors and, and just that whole world, that image would have made sense. And you almost have to wonder uh, if Jesus helped to build this amphitheater. It was under construction when he was a young man 
uh, just a few miles away with his father. He was apprenticed to Joseph the carpenter. So he was in the, he was in the construction business. This would have been a major project for the region. Uh, maybe he even caught a show there. I, I have no idea. But um, now people uh, could call you a hypocrite back then if you were a liar or a deceiver. But Jesus here really means the person who does all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And even if that person is unaware, even if that person is self-deceived, they are being an actor, they're being a hypocrite, they're playing to the wrong audience. They have placed all the meaning and purpose of their lives and their work and their good deeds in the hands of the wrong people. Don't be like them, says Jesus, don't be like them. Instead, Jesus says basically, he says, for example, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now there's actually evidence that at the time, people would sound a trumpet when they were about to give a large gift to, to alert the vicinity of what they were about to do, which I had, I had to think in our context, that would be like um, Randy playing your theme song as you walked to the offering box so that everybody knew, right? That's really not our style today, which I think is a good thing, but it, it, does, it, it betrays a real human tendency, doesn't it? Do we do nothing from a false sense of generosity in order to look good? To be praised by others, to toot our own horns, as Jesus says, of the hypocrites here. Ask any fundraiser. It, it is much easier to raise funds for a new building, for new construction, than it is for maintenance on an old building. Do you know why? Because you, you can put your name on a new building. Jesus says, when you give, don't, left your left, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which don't try to do that literally because you'll look like a crazy person. But Jesus' point is give without agenda. Give because God, your Father, wants you to. And your Father, who sees not only your action of giving, but your motivation for giving, will reward you. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Jesus says, hypocrites pray to impress other people. And sometimes they pray to impress God. He says, get in a room by yourself so you are not tempted to act in front of anyone else. And don't waste time trying to manipulate God into giving you what you want. He already knows. He knows what you need. Now, hear me. Jesus isn't saying public prayer is the problem. He is not against praying in public. He goes right into the Lord's Prayer in this section, which we just don't have time to get into. I'm sorry. But that prayer, you'll notice we said it together, starts with, our Father. Okay, it's a corporate prayer. He's just illustrating the point here. He says, what you're most concerned about when you're praying says a lot about the audience you're living for. And, you know, I'll own it as a pastor, as someone who's asked to pray in public a lot. It is sometimes hard for me to focus 
on him and not on the people that are around me and how they're perceiving me. But that's not just a pastoral problem. Uh, in fact, I distinctly remember, I'll just throw myself under the bus here, I distinctly remember as a, as a new Christian uh, back in college being asked, for, not for the first time, but uh, being asked to pray in front of my small group. It was like a Bible study uh, to kind of close our time together. And uh, I was so focused on how I sounded to the room that I started asking God for just ridiculous things. Um, and the, the low point was when I literally asked God to help us all to gird up our loins. That was what I prayed. Uh, which is a biblical phrase, to be clear, but it does sound very unpleasant. So, and I, no, I, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. The punishment was built in. Um, so if you're a believer out there this morning, okay, look at your prayer life. This is what Je- Jesus is saying. Ask the question, who are you really praying for? Who are you really praying to? Is it God or is it someone else? But Jesus isn't done. He has one more illustration. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting uh, may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, fasting, like I said, one of the most common disciplines uh, in Jesus' day. And again, fasting is not the problem. Uh, In fact, fasting can be a really powerful discipline today to help us focus on God and, and, and realize very tangibly that life is much, much more than the food we eat. But, there are, but Jesus says there are ways, there are subtle ways to make even that more about other people than about God. And, and Jesus alludes here that perhaps in his day, people either covered their faces or they stopped washing their faces during times of fasting, basically so that the whole world would know, hey, I'm fasting and I'm probably a better person than you are because I'm fasting. Okay, Lent is coming up. Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Uh, Lent is typically a time for many Christian traditions all over the world for for Christians to intentionally fast in anticipation of Easter. I think it's a wonderful thing. can be a very powerful thing. But how easy it is to post on Facebook what you've given up for Lent, right? How easy that is, how subtle that is. Okay, this is not an ancient problem. This is a human problem. Now, there are many things Jesus could have listed here. There are many more things we could list here to, sh- to show us our audience problem. Church attendance for the wrong reasons, Bible reading, acts of service, volunteering. Jesus' point, though, is very simple. If Look at your good deeds. Look at your good deeds. And that will show you your heart motivations. That will show you your audience. Now, Jesus was speaking primarily to devout Jews at the time, which explains his list, why he chose those things. Maybe you aren't even a believer right now and your good deeds look very different from this list. Okay, whatever they are, whatever those deeds are for you, however you define them, you can do them for all the wrong reasons. You can help people for all the wrong reasons and you can do them harm and yourself in the process and it will destroy you. This is Jesus' point. And the really terrifying part of all this for me 
is how easy it is to look the part. So easy. How easy it is to put on airs, how easy it is to deceive others and ourselves into convincing everyone that we've got it together, we're fine, I'm a good person. See, Jesus began this section with a strong warning. If you, if you notice, beware or be careful. This word is only used twice in Matthew. Once here and once when Jesus talks about the danger of false teachers deceiving you. Okay, the danger of self-deception is never higher than when we are doing our righteousness, our good deeds. It is so easy to do the right things for the wrong audience. The hypocrites that Jesus describes here, keep in mind, would have been the model citizen to Jesus' listeners from the outside. On paper, you're telling me this person is generous? They pray and they fast. That's a good person, right? Jesus says, beware. Don't be like the hypocrites. They look the part. They really do. But they play for the wrong audience. And it's destroying them. And they they will have no place in, in the kingdom I've come to offer. See, we have a serious audience problem. And if we have an audience problem long enough, eventually we'll find that we also have a serious reward problem. Okay, notice throughout the passage, Jesus focus on the reward. He compares the reward of the life of the hypocrite and the life in God's kingdom, the God-focused life, the life of an audience of one. And if we aren't careful, Jesus says, not only will we have the wrong audience whose opinion does not ultimately matter at all, Not only will that happen, we will will have an impoverished reward. We won't get the reward we were designed for. And Jesus doesn't actually explicitly spell these out, what I'm about to say, but he implies them throughout this whole section. And here are the rewards of the life of the hypocrite. Here's what you get. Reward number one, you will become enslaved to the opinions of other people. You see, okay, again and again, Jesus makes the point that the momentary applause the fleeting respect, the temporary satisfaction that the hypocrite receives from other people is all the reward they will ever get. They have received their reward. There it is. And it may feel like the good life for a little while, but you'll need more and more applause and more praise and more popularity to feel normal and to feel whole and the high will pass and you'll have to start all over again and that is all the reward you will ever get. And before you know it, There's nothing you won't sacrifice. Your job, your family, your faith, your convictions, your integrity for the applause of others. The fickle praise of the mob. And that's that's enslavement. See, it's no wonder that many of of the wealthiest, most powerful, most influential people in the world can be the most unhappy and the most insecure and the most enslaved in the world. This isn't a judgmental statement. I was recently... um, watching a clip of Lady Gaga, which I know you're thinking, hang on, um, this is relevant. (laughs) She was being interviewed by a group of, I think it was performing art students or something like that, and she was talking about the emotional crisis she had because of her fame and the anxiety that that caused her and and how she she talked about, I can't reply to a text without wondering what's the media going to think, what are they going to think, are they going to like me? Is this going to affect my friendship? Is this going to affect my career? Every time, every interaction was like that. And she made the comment, and I think it's profound. She said, this is the age we live in. We are unconsciously communicating lies about ourselves to other people all the time. 
and it blew me away. Here's one of the most influential and successful people of our day, completely enslaved and terrified of what other people think of her. Not only is that reward very fleeting, as as she illustrates, but it may turn against you entirely because when you let someone down or you make a bad decision, when you have banked your happiness on the opinions of other people, your world will fall apart. It's a terrible way to live. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a terrible way to live. And his warning is just as much for the Pharisees of the world, the church-going, Bible-believing Christians, as it is for the Lady Gagas of the world, because this isn't a religious problem. This is a human problem. And Jesus offers us an alternative, okay? He says, let God handle the PR for you. He can, he's got it. He has something much better for you. He has freedom from the slavery of living for eye service. You can live, says Jesus, before an audience of one, and there's freedom there. Now hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to that. Reward number two of the life of the hypocrite. You will live for the opinions of others, and you will hollow out on the inside. You will hollow out. You cannot miss Jesus' constant refrain about God's attention to the secret life. Notice, he says again and again, and your father who sees in secret, and your father who, sees in se- and your father who is in secret will reward you. This could not be more countercultural, notice. We are so obsessed with the public, the external, the visible. Think of the effort we put into manicuring our bodies and controlling our image and massaging people's opinions of us. Think of how we typically make decisions. How will that person respond? What will they think? How do I manage this, that? And, and for me, how, how often, way down the list is the question, but wait, what would God think if I did that? What, what would he say? What does he think? What is my private life? What are my secret life? What is my secret life telling me about me? I couldn't help uh, but think of the story of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, if you're familiar with that story. Um, It's the story of a man who is absolutely beautiful on the outside, perfect. His neighbors marvel at his perpetual youth and beauty. He never ages, never spoils or fades. He looks the part, looks great. But hidden in his home is a portrait of himself. And and the portrait is really a metaphor for his secret life, his inner life, his true heart, his true character. Really, the portrait represents the part of Dorian that only God and Dorian can ever see. And it grows more and more, throughout the story, it grows more and more grotesque year after year after year of his life as the inside deteriorates. He's impeccable to the outside. The, The audience loves him, looks great. But the reader knows, and for our purposes, God knows the ugliness within, the death, the lies that hypocrisy create. The Bible talks about this as well, illustrates this as well. When when God chose David, King David, um, it's a story in 1 Samuel, he sent a prophet named Samuel to go anoint him king. Samuel arrives, meets David's brothers, David's not there. Uh, if you remember, uh, he, Samuel focuses on Eliab, who is David's brother, and says something to the effect of, this guy, surely this is God's king. This guy looks the part. God says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Here's, here's what all this means, okay? Who we are in the prayer closet, who we are on the computer alone late at night, who we are when no one is watching, who we are on the portrait that we hide from everybody else, that is what God cares about. He could care less when other people love you if your secret life is a mess. doesn't matter. That's what he's going to destroy you. That's what he wants to fix. That's where he wants you to focus your attention. So, but we spend so much time on the outside at the neglect of the inside, the public over the private, the reputation over integrity. And before we know it, we become a facade, a ghost, someone we no longer recognize. And the secret to the good life is not on the outside. Despite everything that you're told, the secret to the good life is not on the outside. It is not in public. It is in private. It is in secret and who you are there. And again, Jesus offers us an alternative. He, he says, he gives us the discipline of secrecy. He doesn't call it that. This is why Dallas Willard, when, when he comments on this passage in, in The Divine Conspiracy, which if you have never read that book, please do, The Divine Conspiracy. Willard says, Jesus is pointing us to this, this, the fundamental discipline of secrecy, which we can put on all of our other disciplines. When we fast, let us do it in secret. So we know our only audience is God. He's the only one who knows. When we pray, let us do it often alone in a secret place as Jesus himself did so that we remember to whom it is that we are praying. Now this is not, hear me, this is not a new legalism. There's nothing magical about doing something in secret that God uh, will uh, listen to you better because of that. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, what, what is it? Well, what it gives is unadulterated access, attention, and devotion to God. That's what secrecy does. And it's not unlike going on a private date on Valentine's Day. It's not. When you go out with your spouse on Valentine's Day, which if you didn't know it is coming up, so make plans now. But if, you, if you're going to go out, or with a boyfriend or girlfriend, why, why do you guys, why do you go out alone? Is it to earn their approval? No. It's to give them your undivided attention, right? That's why you do that. This is the life Jesus is offering you with the Father. Because God, according to Jesus, he wants that intimacy with you. He is not, God, the Father, is not a critic in your life. He's not another critic in your life. He's not another opinion you've got to manage. He is a Father who loves you. There's a big difference. And this gets really at our final reward for the life of the hypocrite. Okay, when you live for the wrong audience, your reward is that you'll get a lot of critics. But you'll miss out on a loving father. You'll miss out. If you grew up in the church or you've been coming for a long time, you probably didn't catch this. I, I know I didn't when I first read this. But in Jesus' day, um, this constant uh, reference to God as father was entirely unique. You see it throughout this whole passage. God, your father, your father. He, this was... This was unheard of in the Judaism of Jesus' day. God was king, he was judge, and those are true, but he was not father, especially not my father or your father in this really intimate and personal way. Jesus does this because he wants us to see 
the real reward of living before an audience of one. The reward is that our audience, the only opinion that matters in the whole world, is not another critic. It's not even primarily a judge, but for those who follow Christ, a loving father. That's the reward. Now, I know, I have to say, I know the word father can carry baggage because our earthly fathers are not perfect, and some of them are downright bad. I get it. But Jesus is offering here access to the good father, the perfect heavenly father. And here's the thing about good fathers that make them so different from critics, because, because critics size you up, right? Are they good enough? Fathers build you up, encourage you. Critics test you. Fathers train you. Critics are hard to please. If you don't believe me, just go online and find an article and read the comments section, okay? Critics are hard to please. But fathers are, as C.S. Lewis put it, so easy to please and so hard to satisfy. I'll never forget when my son Benjamin or my daughter Avery took their first steps. I'll never forget it. If If you're a parent or a grandparent or aunt and uncle and you were there for that moment, you'll never forget it. Those steps were, from a critic's standpoint, feeble and awkward and a sorry excuse for walking. (laughs) That is all true. But from a father's standpoint, I was overjoyed. I was so pleased beyond measure because I loved them so much, but I was far from satisfied. You see, now I need to train them to learn to stand and then to walk and then to run, but I will not abandon them as they stumble along the way. Jesus is saying the good life is lived before an audience of one because that audience is not another critic like everyone else in your life. God is a good father who delights in you. You see, the freedom and love, that good life that we're all looking for, it is not found in pursuing a life of no audience. That is a lie, it's a trap. It's found in the right audience. It's found in the Father, the Father who sent his son, Jesus, because he wanted your heart so badly. And when we give our lives to him, as Jesus is offering here, when we trust him, we hold his opinion above all other opinions, we will find that the reward, the real reward, is not a life of peace and rest. Though we'll have that. The reward is not uh, freedom from the tyranny of the mob, though we'll have that. The reward is not character and integrity, even when we're alone, though we will have that too. No, the reward is the Father who is so pleased with you, but will never be satisfied until you are completely and utterly, utterly His. And that is exactly what He promises to do if you give your life to Him. That's the good life. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, how often we read your word and we think, (laughs) I couldn't have that life. I don't deserve that life. I don't understand that life. But God, you offer us and your son the good life before an audience of one. What an incredible freedom that is and how often we ignore it every day for the momentary applause 
of others. God, give us the strength today to choose your opinion over all others. It is so much better. You are so much more gracious than any other voice in our life. God, give us the strength to choose you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.